This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by James Dolezal. James, it is good to be with you today. Jonathan, it's good to be with you. Uh, we have the opportunity to have one of our conversations just between the two of us today. And the topic that you suggested was perseverance of the saints. What what did you have in mind to start off this conversation? I thought simply a review of this doctrine, uh, which should be a great source of encouragement to believers Generally, as we run the Christian life and as we face adversity in the Christian life, we may be tempted to think that we are running in vain because the running is not always easy. And there's that question of whether we will finish the race. And what I was interested in with the doctrine of perseverance is perseverance as a grace that God gives that does not negate our running, laying aside encumbrances and Paul talking about setting his eyes on the upward prize of the call of God in Christ Jesus in Philippians 3, running so as to attain the prize. And it's it's just simply um, what assurance do we have that our running will not be in vain and that the course before us will in fact be finished? Yeah, and ultimately I think you put it well. This doesn't obviate our need to strive, to make every effort, to run the race, to not be like a boxer who's just beating the air. All of these, all of these effort metaphors that we have in the New Testament are, are there for good reason. But what it ultimately means is that our salvation in Christ is secure because of the promises of God, the work of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, the canons of Dort, speak about this in Heading 5, and this is how they put it. They talk about our own efforts, but then it ultimately says this, so it is not by their own merits or strength, but by God's undeserved mercy that they neither forfeit faith and grace totally nor remain in their downfalls to the end and are lost. Dort is acknowledging that people can have all kinds of struggles, all kinds of difficulties, and, and, and then they say this, With respect to themselves, this not only easily could happen, but also undoubtedly would happen. But with respect to God, it cannot possibly happen. God's plan cannot be changed. God's promise cannot fail. The calling according to God's purpose cannot be revoked. The merit of Christ, as well as his interceding and preserving, cannot be nullified. And the sealing of the Holy Spirit can neither be invalidated nor wiped out. So that, I think, is at the root of it all, that while we are making every effort and while we are acknowledging the reality of the ups and downs of our life, the doubts that we face, the sin that we often are enmeshed in, ultimately, we have these promises from God himself and God's work in us through Christ won't be nullified. Think of Paul's words in Philippians 1.6, for I'm confident of this very thing, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And I was thinking sometimes our earthly course does 
bring an onslaught of difficulties that may cause us to doubt that. And if the sufficiency were in our own natural strength or in our own doing, then we would have good reason to doubt that we would persevere to the end. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says in verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And there's a certain wisdom in the whole manner of perseverance that the people who persevere are not um, superhumans and they're not even relatively strong humans. They're humans who are marked by weakness, who are marked by setback. They're the kind of people that if you saw running the race, you would think to yourself, naturally, that guy's not going to make it. Paul goes on. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And I, I think of this, not crushed and not despairing, because God prevents that from happening. But we're especially clear when he says, but we are not forsaken. Not forsaken by whom? Who isn't forsaking us? And I think the point isn't not that we're not forsaking each other. It's that God whose power is at work in us is not forsaking these earthen vessels in whom he is working. One of the passages that I come back to over and over again when it comes to this doctrine is John 6, where Jesus gives a discourse on his own ministry. He describes the fact that he is the bread of life, and yet not everyone in the crowd accepts it. In fact, most do not accept it. And so Jesus, as it were, pulls back the curtain to his disciples and shows them, in a sense, the behind-the-scenes dynamic of salvation. And what we see is that Jesus points out very clearly that no one can come to him except the Father who sent him draws them. But then he says, the one who comes to me, I will not cast out and I will raise him up on the last day. And what you see is that our salvation from beginning to end is the work of the triune God. And because it's the work of the triune God, we can bank on it. We can rely upon his work in us because as you said, it doesn't depend on, on ourselves. And there's a sense in which God accentuates the fact that it's his work through our own weakness, as Paul says, so that the excellency of the power would be of God and not of us. Particularly there where he draws us to himself and he says he'll raise us up on the last day, in particular because resurrection is where we finally do triumph over the world, the flesh, and the devil, if I can put it that way. That's the decisive victory that ushers us into the eternal state and of perfect, uninhibited fellowship with God and with the Lamb. John 10 kind of picks up on the same on the same thing again where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And then he says this, if they can keep it. Uh, he says, rather, I give them eternal life and they will, they never, never, they will never perish. Yeah. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. I always like to say, you know, to people say, well, yeah, no one can snatch them out of his hands, but maybe they can squeeze out you know, right. themselves. They can jump or something. They can, they can, as it were, pry the fingers of God's gracious grip off of themselves and lose that eternal life that they've been given. And he's saying, in fact, no, no one can snatch them out of my hand or pry them out of my hand. And I would say, even they themselves. He then says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I think we need to read this doctrine um, together with passages about warning and about 
about the need to persevere and to die to sin and to put on Christ. These are the means by which God preserves us and causes us to persevere, dying to sin, living to God, newness of Christ, repentance and faith and, and Christian discipline. But we, we don't want to mistake that requirement to run and to discipline ourselves so as to attain to the prize with some idea that the strength then must be of ourselves. Well, that's the tension. Many people, when encountering this doctrine for the first time, assume that what it's going to mean is that therefore we sort of have a momentary act of faith, however they would define that, right. and then and then and then we can just go on the rest of our lives secure in the knowledge that it's all taken care of, and we can act and live however we choose. Sometimes you'll hear this uh, in the slogan "Once saved, always saved." Right, and I don't I don't disagree with that in that. If really you are saved, that is not to be lost. But I think sometimes what that slogan is is used for is cover for effectively not even running the race, if that makes sense. Right. And so that's why I, th- I think we would both agree perseverance of the saints is a better term because— Than simply security? Would you say that? Would you, I, would you I, prefer I think, it that I think, way? I think it is better because it shows sort of the longevity of— Running the race, as you say, that is guaranteed by the work of Christ in us. Do you remember in the 70s, 80s, early 90s, this whole discussion that was going on in evangelicalism about the carnal Christian? I say that in scare quotes, though our listeners can't see me doing that, because this idea that you could you know, have a decisive moment, pray a prayer, feel guilt over sin, make some confession of it, accept Jesus in your heart, and then proceed to live as if none of that had ever happened or no transformation had taken place. Yeah, I I remember that well, and I think that's all bound up in it. What do we mean by uh, regeneration? Uh, I think in many respects that it comes back to this notion of uh, the fact that in our justification, when we are saved, uh, God has done a work in us by his Holy Spirit, transforming the disposition of our heart. So, you're right. It's all of a piece, though. If you think of salvation as a decision that you have made in a moment and not a work of God in your life, then you're going to hinge everything on that moment. And I think it also it also overlooks uh, the fact that the continuation of growth and grace is itself an, an inextricable part of that salvation. So if you say once saved, always saved, then you really have to ask the question, what do you mean by saved? Right. Right. Um, do you mean secure or do you mean secure and progressively being transformed and conformed to the image of Christ? So that person, you know, you don't want to say God saves you and then you decide whether or not you're going to grow. God saves you and the growth and the power of that growth through the Spirit is itself part and parcel of that gift of salvation. The, the beginning of the work comes together with a continuance and development of the same work of salvation. Yeah, that's, that's well stated. And I think what both of us want to emphasize here is that this is ultimately from beginning to end, the work of God in us, the triune God in and through us in saving us. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, I think to the believer who might be thinking, well, what if I'm not saved? I don't want to discourage a serious consideration of that question. No. 
Um, that you need to make your calling an election sure, and you need to take an inventory to see whether the marks of saving grace are really present in you to make sure that it isn't shallow soil with a kind of superficial joy that then fades away. That does require some introspection, and I don't, I wouldn't want to use the doctrine of perseverance to minimize that important introspective aspect of the Christian life. But to the one who can discern the hand of God in his or her life take hold of the precious promises that none can snatch us from our Father's hand. Well, James, thanks for this brief conversation, and thank you to our listeners for uh, tuning in to another episode of Theology on the Go. We love hearing from you. We love interacting with you. We are glad when you're able to pass along the podcast, to rate and review the podcast. Some of you can donate, and you can do that on alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. And we would recommend as a kind of further discussion of this, a little book published by the Banner of Truth by Sinclair Ferguson called The Christian Life, A Doctrinal Introduction. And so if you'd like to win a copy of that, we can offer you that opportunity on placefortruth.org. Click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a place for you there to enter to win. And thanks as always for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.